You're listening to the Accordion to Me podcast with Veronique Medrano. On this week's episode, we chat with Tejano singer-songwriter and producer Shelly Lares. Shelly talks about her musical career alongside her family, her journey of self-discovery that led to her coming out, as well as the never-before-heard story of the Tejano Music Award she received on live TV that was taken away and given to another artist. Stay tuned to find out who. As some of you know, early in 2020, I was in an accident. The consequences that you have to live with after can be a lot. You can lose your car, you can lose work and therefore money, and you can of course be super injured and have huge hospital bills to pay. No bueno. So if like me, you've been the victim of an accident, you need a professional to help you get the care you need. In case of an accident, you need a lawyer to protect your rights and your wallet And you don't have to look any further than that simple phrase by going to the URL incaseofanaccident.com for a free consultation 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if the person that suffered the accident wasn't you, but maybe it was your tia or your abuelita or something, don't worry. Everyone at In Case of an Accident speaks Spanish. They can even take messages through WhatsApp at 888-990-0911. So if you or a loved one have suffered through a horrible car accident like me, visit the team at incaseofanaccident.com for more help. Just don't forget to tell them that Veronique Medrano from Accordion to Me sent you. Hi, everybody. My name is Veronique Medrano, your wonderful host of This is the Accordion to Me podcast, where we talk to different guests about life and the arts accordion to them. Haha. <laughs> and I am your host, Veronique Medrano. Today we are talking with the incomparable and bombastic Shelly Lattice, Grammy nominated Mexican American Tejano singer and songwriter who has over 10 Tejano Music Awards under her belt and has been nominated three times for a Grammy Award and has been on the Billboard charts four times uh, with such hits as Soy Tu Amor, Siempre. Lo esperaré and mil besos. Thank you so much for joining us, Shelly. Thank you. <laughs> um, this is the first time anyone has used bombastic with me. So I love that. That's <laughs> it's so appropriate being little Miss Dynamite, right? Literally. So, I'm I'm like, I'm really shocked that like you haven't had that as an intro. I know. <laughs> I know. Usually the intros are all no, no, no disrespect to anybody that's dyslexic like myself. They usually like Miss Little Dynamite or Dynamite Little Miss or whatever. It's usually like not Little Miss Dynamite. But thank you for that. That's super awesome. I appreciate that. Now, I'm really so excited to just sit down with you for once and be able to like, because the most interesting thing about the music industry and just industry and the arts is if you're successful, (laughs) then you're working. And if you're working, (laughs) that means you're never in one place for very long, which is unfortunate because I wish like it's, it's the double-edged sword. You want to be, you want to have all the work, which means Mm -hmm. there's work, but then you also want to chill, which, but then that means there's no work. So it's, it's a double-edged sword. (laughs) Exactly. I agree. And I haven't been able to sit still for about another couple of the last, you know, 
now this year for sure 21 I mean, you know how it is I, I like to stay busy anyway regardless of whether I'm on the road or not I'm you know now being in total control of my career in every aspect I'm the one now dealing with you know contracts and promoters and shows and all of that stuff which I really enjoy I do but it does take a lot of time and effort too during the week. Oh yeah. When it comes to that aspect of the business, we are, we're going to, we're going to dig deep, Shelly. We're going to dig deep today. <laughs> but some, we're going to dig so deep that I'm going to start first off with the fact that I did not know. And mind you, we've known each other for some time. I did not know that your name was Michelle. Yes. And that's and, my birth name. And so I find it really hilarious because my middle name is Michelle. That is weird. But I will tell you this. My name was almost Mitchell. Because they thought you were a boy? No. My mom had all of us cesarean. So I'm the baby. So my sister before me is nine years older. So when my mom had me, you know, she was out of it, you know, obviously. And when the nurse was asking my father what my name was, he said, Michelle, Michelle Yvette. And so the nurse is like, okay, can you spell it for me? You know, because some people spell it differently. And he was like, M I T. And my mom <laughs> thankfully was awake enough to go, no, 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 <laughs> no, sir. It's C, it's, it's Michelle. And so had my mom not woken up or heard my father trying to spell Michelle, I would have been Mitchell. So I don't think I would have been Shelly. I would have been just Mitchell. Or, or, I know. Or you would have been Chelly? I don't know. <laughs> to Chelly? Or Mitch? Or Mitch? I don't know. Probably Mitch would have not, you know, but just to know that that could have been possible is kind of scary. <laughs> no disrespect to Mitchells, but, you know, for me, you know, it's just. But, that wasn't um, your vibe. Reason, that's not your vibe. No, no, my, my mom named me Michelle because she, she liked the nickname Shelly. She knew, I re, can't remember who exactly it was that that had that name that she was like, well, that's what I want to name my daughter, Michelle. So, and I'm only, you know, I was only called that in school and, you know, now as an adult, only when you're paying bills. But other than that, I'm totally not used to Michelle at all. It's weird. Does it feel just, it feels foreign to you, I'm assuming, because it was interesting that you said your birth name, because I, I don't hear that very often, but I can understand yeah. the sentiment. Yes. And, you know, another thing going to Shelly, when people call me Shell that don't really know me very well, that makes me uncomfortable. <gasps> oh my bit. God. Yes. So nicknames, I, I go by V, I go by Vero. Yeah. And if anyone uses either of those names out in public, it absolutely, like it is almost a fight or flight type of situation. It, yeah. it literally has, there's so much fear. I don't know why either. I mean, it's, it's so innocuous. It's so like anyone would probably tell me like, yo, it's just a nickname, but like, no, there is certain no. sentiment to yes. a nickname. Like if I know you, if we are tight, then we're cool. But otherwise, no, no. Right. Exactly. Like if you were to call me shell, of course I'm, I'm used to that. Cause I know you, you know, we're friends. I talked to you many times, but I'm talking about people that that don't know me very well or don't know me, have never talked to me on a personal level at all, but they hear other people calling me shell. I don't know. That just really kind of freaks me out. So I'm a little very, uh, You're protective you know, of that. Even, yeah. Even my friends, like, like Elida, I, I nicknamed her Ellie pop. 
So I have heard fans call her Ellie Pop. I'm like, you can't call her that. That's the name I gave her. That's like, you know, no, that's, you don't do that. <laughs> like I, I, you heard me say it, but that does not mean you say it. Like there is a difference. Yeah. There is a difference. Yeah. And I would like it yeah. acknowledged. Yeah, it's oh so weird. God. It's so weird. But, you know, I mean, I have many names. And now Little Miss Dynamite was one that, you know, was uh, given to me. I can't tell you where, but that's why I, I abbreviated it to, to LMD because I'm like, you know, Little Miss Dynamite is too long already. I'm already tired of saying the whole the whole thing. So I just went to LMD and I feel like LMD was more of a coming at it from a more established sense. You know, Little Miss Dynamite sounds like you're still growing. You're still like young. And, you know, here I am 50 and I'm like, I've been through so much. I just felt like LMD is just more of a, a very powerful statement to just use that word LMD. Yeah. And, and I would, I would definitely agree with that. Like it, it feels like a brand, like there's a difference yes. between being an artist and, and coming out and, and barely starting. And yeah. you have this, this idea of where you want to be versus yes. then you, you establish what the brand is and then that's what you go by and you build that. And I know a lot of people hate it, hate the fact that most art is now branding is now, you know, the, the terminology is very business, but it's always been that way. It's the best way. It's the only way to do it from there. If you really want to establish something in any business, you know, That's and, long and, lasting. And we, yeah, yeah, it's been, exactly. I mean, just, it, and, and I'm glad you noticed that because it's, it's been a long time for that. I've really kind of, kind of thought about where I wanted to go with my branding as far as LMD, you know, my merchandise is one that I take very serious to, you know, now the tour, the final tour LMD legacy, that is like, yeah, I mean, that is such a huge statement for me in my almost 40 year career, you know, because I have built a legacy for myself here in this industry over the past 40 years. And I'd like to get into that. Like I said, we're going to get into as much as you want to get into, as much as you're comfortable with getting into. I'd like to not necessarily ask how you started, because I know that there's just so much out there about what, how you started. And I'd actually like to, to pivot it in a personal sense. When did you really own your artistry and who you were as an artist and as a songwriter? When, when did that moment happen? Because you have been singing, you know, just, just really quickly. I know it's been since you were quite young. Um, if ten I'm correct, old. you said yeah, ten. six, seven, ten. ten? I, ten? Well, okay. I, started, I recorded my first record. I, I recorded my first record at age 10. So like you've been at it since you were 10 and, and that's, that's such a different space, like 10 to where you are now. I'm not aging you. And no, don't you can, you all, all no, you audio people can. Is, like, <laughs> no, I'm saying that's such a, there's so much that goes in between that, you know, in years. Yeah. You know, it's so strange. Even though I was still living as an artist, as you know, vocally, whatever, at 10 years old. I mean, God, you're not vocally trained, you know, to where you are now at that age. Of course not. My first record I recorded with Manny Guerra. It was weird because I didn't know who Manny Guerra very well. I just didn't even know his status as a producer. When Hot Tamales, the band I first started with, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, when they went to Manny Guerra to record the first record with me, which was a song called Break It To Me Gently, by which was made uh, very well by, by originally by Brenda Lee, who was the original Little Miss Dynamite, and then by Juice Newton. So what I did was... We made it bilingual. 
Okay. We made it bilingual, so my mom wrote the Spanish lyrics. But I remember going into this studio, and the very first, first studio I recorded at literally looked like a shack. Like, it was nothing of the sorts of what you would think a recording studio is supposed to look like. And at 10 years old, you're like, what is this? You know, you're walking into the studio and, and then when you get in there, it's a totally different world. But I remember recording my vocals. A lot of people may not know this, but I recorded that record in one take. Manny Guerra was like looking at me. I will never forget this. He was looking at me like, wow, this little girl is, her intonation's great. And she, here I've been working with these music, musicians all night. And Boom, you know, she comes in. So I kind of already felt like that confidence level was kicking in pretty early. Do you know what I'm saying? Because I did understand that this man I was working with was someone of a very high caliber. I was a little bit excited about learning from the best. And I will never forget, um, you know, standing there looking, you know, when we were listening back, I stood next to him and here I am just, you know, by his shoulder, looking at his console and asking him, what do these things do at 10 years old? I'm like, so I think at a very young age, my creative freedom and confidence was from the very beginning. Once I got into my first, uh, I recorded records after that with, you know, different studios. Yeah. You were with, you were with Manny, you're with Sony, you were with Texas and then, and, and then you were independent. I know there's probably others in there, but yeah. Prior to signing with Manny, my first time at 17. So I recorded with Manny at 10 and he didn't want to sign me then. He felt I was too young. I recorded like four more 45s in between with this orchestra orchestra. And then I signed with Manny at 17 and Tu Solo Tu was the first album in 1989, the first full album. And that took a lot of my pleading with him to allow me and JJ Reyes, who was my keyboard player at the time, who I started doing writing with. I also had written with Chris Bettis already because he was in my band in 88. So I had already written some English stuff, some pop stuff that I wanted to also do because I, I was influenced by so many things. Um, so on my first album, he kind of wheeled and dealed with me and he was like, all right, I'll, I'll let you and JJ do half of the album. So... I mean, I, I feel, feel I'm very blessed because it was it seemed to be from the very beginning that I was allowed to really understand and and let people know who I am from the beginning. It wasn't until I think maybe, you know, the second album, he let me write a little more. The third album, he let me write even more. And, for, and then by the fourth album, I was like, I don't want you in this studio anymore. I would rather just, you know, have control so very early on, I think it, you know, it, it started for me. And that's amazing, honestly. And, and what are some of those, those lessons that you learned as a child? How are you applying them now? Cause I know that now you're, you're a producer, you're, you're, of course you're still a songwriter, but now you're producing and songwriting for other artists or collaborating as well. So, you know, all those lessons from, from when you were young, how do you feel that some of those things have translated? I'm very thankful because uh, I come from a very structured home anyway. My parents were, you know, all about discipline and structure and, you know, doing things not half-assed, but really applying yourselves. And that went for me and my siblings. And those were the kind of people my parents were. They had amazing worth ethic, especially my father. I'm so thankful for that because that is what my 
less, that's my, those were my teachers. My parents were my very, very first teachers. And then in sending me to private school, um, not only was I getting a very good education, but I was being taught that things have to be done in a certain way. I was taught discipline. And one of the things, and you will agree with me in music as a vocalist, as an artist, you have to be disciplined. You have to be, especially with your voice. You know, you have to, there's certain things you can't do. You know, there's certain foods you can't eat and, and things like that all come into play. So a guy that was interviewing me not that long ago said, wow, he's like, what discipline it took for you at such a young age to work so hard in the industry. And I was like, wow, I never thought about it like that, but it never seemed like that to me. It seemed very natural to apply myself the way that I did, because I was not only that like that in music, but I was like that in sports. You know, I was very competitive. I was very, I, I wanted to be the best me that I could be at a very young age. So it wasn't everything that I did. It wasn't just in music, but the discipline thing just really, I feel has really contributed to the stamina and the longevity that I've been able to achieve in this industry, hands down. Do you feel that like at the end of the day, that stamina, that, that mental, you know, forthwithness and all these lessons that you've learned from these different labels have, have shaped how you interact with other artists? Absolutely. Absolutely. I learned a lot from Manny Guerra. I learned a lot of things the hard way. You know, most people don't understand that, you know, we go through a lot of, there's a lot of trials and tribulations in what we do. I learned a lot from Manny as far as uh, the hard way about songwriting and song publishing. I knew nothing about that going in, nothing. All I knew was that he was going to allow me to write, but he was going to publish the songs a hundred percent. I didn't know what that meant. I was like, okay, well, at least my songs are going to be heard. I'm going to be a songwriter. And that's all JJ and I were really concerned about. It wasn't until Soy Tu Amor that uh, was my first number one hit, which was the most Latin played song ever in 1994, you know, which brought a lot of money in at the time. I remember my first uh, check for Soy Tu Amor for 50% of a songwriter was $12,000. And then my second check was $24,000. And it just kept getting higher and higher as more airplay was coming. And that's when, I had that aha moment, like, holy crap, if JJ and I are making this money for just 50, 50 of songwriting, Maddie is making a lot of money off this song, you know? So when I went, when I left Maddie and went with Sony, that's when I was like, you know what? We have to have our own publishing. Yes, we will do songs that are published by Sony if I like the song, but right away they want to shove their publishing down your throat and be like, okay, well, you got to record our songs that are, you know, of course they're going to want you to do that. So now at this point, because of those experiences that I have with more reason, it fueled me to educate the new artists on these things, songwriting, song publishing, exactly how things work when you're working with the label to be very careful with contracts that you sign. Sony did well for me. I, I had no complaints with that, but I think with Sony, my only disappointment was I came across this when I went to Nashville for the first time in 96 and I got to record with one of the biggest country artists, Vince Gill. They didn't really know where to, where to put us at that time. It's not as open as it is now, you know, per se. But because we were doing so many different sounds and so many different genres, they, as corporate America, 
felt like you should be one thing and this way they knew where to put you. So now, right now I try to, like you mentioned, I took on the leadership role and the mentors, the mentorship I take very seriously because I don't want the artist to go through what I went through. I, I know everybody, everybody's journey is different, but damn, if I have information that is going to help another artist then best believe I'm going to share it. So starting shell shock records three was because not only for myself, was I tired of making money for other people, but because I want to sign artists, I wasn't going to, I'm not signing artists until I'm no longer an artist because I want to be able to give my whole 150% to my artists financially, uh, time wise, because I've been there, done that. I've been on the back burner before and I, it doesn't feel good. So that's why I try to share my experiences when I collaborate with an artist or when they call to ask me for advice. Now, speaking of Manny Guerra, I'm, I'm sure you're aware that, that he did get lawsuits and, and so on in regards to that, in regards to the songwriting. And did that ever, you know, change your opinion of, of how things went with, with how those, those things were structured or, or did you feel just given your relationship, it was a little different than maybe other yeah. people who went through a lawsuit with him? I never thought of, you know, going through the lawsuit because I thought to myself, someday I'll be able to have complete uh, control of my catalog. I knew that was going to come. That day was going to come. So I had to be very patient with that. I wasn't holding anything against many in that sense, because I think that's all part of the nature of the beast is that, you know, he, in, at the end of the day, that was part of his business. He wasn't doing it because he was trying to scam me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He was doing it because he was trying to get established as a publisher as well. But the only part that I did have that I was very upset about, not so much was the songwriting, but was the mechanical royalties that we never received. And to the fans that don't understand what that means, that means like they're basically telling you, you didn't sell one CD or album or cassette, you know, cause we're all entitled to a percentage of money per record sale per unit and receiving $0 in seven years that I was with him. And in 10 years that I was with Dejas records and receiving $0 from, from those companies, that was probably my biggest, biggest thing that upset me the most with Manny and with Dejas. And so just to just to just put quick pause here, what that means, just just to even even drive it down just a little further for those who are who are listening and who are trying to understand what she's driving at, because I know that she she put out some big numbers, 12,000, 24,000. It's growing, it's growing, it's growing. This is from radio alone. That's it. Just radio. So let's let's look at the, the bag of money. And just break it down, bring it home that she is only getting that money. That is the billboard charts are only from radio play in the 90s, not from radio and CD sales. These are two totally different animals. And you are literally receiving the bag, receiving the money from only one half of the whole pie. Exactly. And that's, exactly. And that's infuriating. And that is frustrating. I can understand. It is. Yes. And, and it was. And then to see, you know, him go from the shack we discussed to a, a brand new studio built from the ground up. And, and at the time he had an amazing roster. You know, he had a cultura, La Tropa F, Ram, me. I mean, the list goes on. Michael, Texas Latino. You. Yeah, he had Texas Latino. I'm talking about Manny first. And then the same exact thing happened with the house records. You know, zero mechanicals 
and then going from Melody Ranch to a studio built from the ground up, multi-million dollar studio. Yes, we all got to record there and, and, you know, reap the studio benefits, but guys, we don't get anything free. (laughs) You know, it it, it comes from our royalties anyway. And, 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 you know, in the nineties, when, when some of the artists were getting uh, signed by Capitol and Arista and, and, and Sony, you know, they give you, $64,000 advancement. And right away as an artist, you're like, yeah, they're giving me 64. Well, guess what? They're not giving you 64,000. They're lending you 64,000. You got to pay that back by whatever royalties are coming in, you know, which, which makes sense, but I'm not ungrateful for the opportunities. I would say Manny is the one that I'm not, I, I mean, I don't hold any hostility towards him anymore of course um because it it is it is what it is at this point i mean it's like what you said it it was a learning lesson like (laughs) I, i can definitely say the same you know i've i've had interactions in the industry that in my last eight going on nine years i can say yo like if i can save you the headache this is how i'm gonna save you the headache i i can completely understand the sentiment like it, yes. it comes from being in the industry. And I just like to stress, it happens to men and women. Yes. Like, we're not saying like, oh my God, you know, this, this only happened to me. Like, I'm trying to, yeah. to really show you guys like, yeah. at the end of the day, you know, it happens to you. It happens to the most established artists in the industry, down to the most independent artists in the industry. And you can imagine what it did, to, what they did to, to, to my pioneers, you know, you could imagine if that happened to us, it was probably worse for, you know, your Ruben Ramos and your, you know, your Laura Canales and the women that came before me, you know? So again, it's just learning experiences. And that's not one of the things that I hope for when I sign an artist. I mean, they're going to know every, you know, in and out of all the elements that go into being an artist. And, and I mean, I'm one, I want to definitely be as fair as possible when it comes to, to who I sign, you know, there's a lot of things that people don't know about what has happened, taken place in our industry because, you know, we've never really documented our journeys, you know, um, that's, that's kind of something that you and I are talking about and what we hope to do. But, you know, again, I don't hold any animosity towards Manny anymore because I, I am grateful for what he taught me. He did, uh, train a racehorse in me as far as my recording and how my work ethic is in the studio, because, you know, we, I had an album out every nine months. It was like having a baby. It's like you go, you know, without all the, without oh all the pain. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> well, that kind of pain. It was a different headache. You know what? That's one of those things that I always talk about. I, I always tell people the pain of putting together a record is something that is like literally going to therapy. It's like literally mm-hmm. restructuring your soul every single yes. time. Some of the best records, some of the most emotional records. I'm going to tell you right now, I will happily sing those songs, but trust me going through it. Yes. You know, there was a song on, on uh, Loteria that even though it was a, a cover, this is from my third record, even though it was a cover, I was going through the worst breakup of, 
probably my mm-hmm. what my life really truly I, right. I've been through breakups right. before but it was pretty bad and what hurt even worse was that the studio that I was recording at was down the street from my ex-fiance's house wow so like I'm recording El Problema and if you guys don't know the song, please go take a listen. But I'm talking about like, el problema no fue hallarte, el problema es olvidarte. That's the first line of the song. So I'm saying like the, the hard part wasn't figuring out who you were. The hard part now is forgetting you. As I am literally less than a mile away yeah. from this man's yeah. home, I'm like, oh my God, why? Because mind you, initially the studio was nowhere near that house. Um, yeah. But they had moved. And so of course I have to put a record out. Hello, I got to work. Yep. Yep. Break up or not, I got to work. And so, yep, absolutely. I, and I remember that. And that's one of those things like, uh, what was one of the records for you? Because you said you've, you've written a lot in most of your records or if not all of yeah. them, which one was the one that really kind of dragged you out? Like just, just absolutely was just like, yo, <laughs> took everything. I'd have to say, uh, all of the other ones took a lot of time and effort from the beginning. Tu Solo Tu, Dynamite, Sabes Que Si, Tejano Star, Apaga La Luz, Quiero Ser Tu Amante, which included Soy Tu Amor, Es Que Estoy Enamorada, some of my biggest hits. But it was, I have to say, Mil Vessels, which was in 2000. I spent about 350 to 400 hours on that album. You're talking about going in at night and not coming out the next night. This is what I mean by, you know, being a racehorse in the studio. The creative process is my favorite. And once I I have something flowing, I do not like to stop. And at the time, my team was J.J. Reyes and Brad Green. And Brad was someone that would go above and beyond for me as far as, like, how invested I was in what we were working on. Um, But in 99 is when my father suffered a stroke. I was on the road in, in Indiana when he had a stroke there. My mom and I had to stay there for over a month. We didn't live in Indiana and Fort Wayne, but we had we couldn't bring him home until a month later. So coming back, I had to have that album out. Mind you, I was with Sony. You're obligated to have the albums when they're supposed to be done. They're deadlines. Mm-hmm. So mind you, I'm, I'm, I'm emotionally at this crossroads because my father has been my foundation, my rock, my strong person, my manager, my security, my sound guy, my everything. And then it just abruptly stopped. Screw the rest, but almost losing my father. Okay, let's start there. When we were finally able to bring him home is when I began working on Mil Vessels album. You know, the song Mil Vessels. Quiero ser también esa química que tienes. Esa química que tienes is one of my biggest hits of, of that album. And it's such a happy song that people didn't even know that I would, I went in there and I recorded vocals and I I went outside, sat on the curb and I just was crying my eyes out because I was still like figuring out what's going to happen. Do I continue without my dad? Do, you know, my dad wanted me to keep going. And that's when he appointed my mom road manager from that day. That album will always mean so much to me because I mean, man, we worked on every freaking detail of that album. Brad Green and I worked on a program called Acid, where we did all of the percussion, every beat at a time. And we worked so hard on it. Like, we we, we busted ass on that album. And, you know, of course, it was one of my most successful albums. And it will always be one of my favorites. And then, you know, going to Don Diego Fuego, which was 
I think right before that album, the song Donde Hubo Fuego is one of my favorite songs. And most people don't understand that, don't even know that I recorded that song in the dark, laying on the floor with the 57 mic in my hand. You know, it's just like so many things in the studio that weren't documented, but that one just really, really did something for me. And then, of course, Obra de Amor in 2018, 2019, because I'd lost my father in 2016. And I, I had already begun that, uh, the writing of that album and arranging of that album the year prior to him passing. So I didn't work on that album for a whole year until I felt I was ready to get back in there and, and finish it out. But those are the only two albums, I think, that, and this last one, LMD82, emotionally that have taken me to a certain place that all the other ones really hadn't. All the other ones were, I was just enjoying writing Tejano and arranging Tejano. Um, they were very um, fun experiences, a lot of work, uh, because, you know, as you become your own producer, you know, I'm in there for the beginning, the middle and the end, all the way out to mixing and mastering to manufacturing. But those three albums, Mil Vessels, uh, Obra de Amor and LMD82 are probably my most, the three most emotional albums I've done. It's so funny because I know people ask the question all the time, what's your favorite album? And the, and I'm not trying to be facetious. I'm just saying no. the question comes up and I feel yeah. so, I feel like I can't choose. Like for me, it's more, what was the album that, you know, really was the one that, that when you were done, you felt at peace that you were like, I wish it would go there sometimes with that question. Just FYI to everyone yeah, who asks. Yeah, yeah sometimes. Because <laughs> I can't know, pick a favorite. No, that's kind of a hard question. It's like asking you to pick your favorite child or your favorite song. Literally, that yeah. one's also rough when you when you when you write and you have songwriters saying, oh, hey, what's your favorite song? Well, bro, I picked all of them like yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I picked all of them because I liked all of them. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I have my favorites. I do have my favorites that I've recorded. Uh, Donde Hubo Fuego is one of them. Mil Vessels is one of them. Of course, I have to love the songs that, that did it for me and put me on the map. You know, Ganas de Besarte, Soy Tu Amor and those songs like that. Devuelve el corazón is probably one of my other favorites that I've done because emotionally that one vocally took a lot out of me. But yeah, it's it's kind of hard to pick one. But you're never really like completely satisfied after an album because oh, yeah. you know you're always you're always wanting to push to that next level. Do you think things. it's because of the fact that you perform it live? Like that, 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 that's the kicker. Like if you were just a studio musician and you just did the, the song in the studio and that's it. And, and yeah, you did your visuals and whatever, then okay, cool. But then you go and you tour and you can sing it a different way. And, and maybe this show you did it a certain way yeah. compared to the recording. Well, no, for me, I'm a stickler for doing songs like the record. Maybe not vocally, you know, uh, I've always preferred the way I sing live than I do record it. That's just me. But as far as music is concerned, my band knows that, it has to sound like the record because I want fans. If fans are going to buy your record, that's what they're going to want to hear live. So, but I feel like I sing a lot with a lot more emotion live than I do in studio. I think maybe because I'm, I'm very critical of my intonation. I'm very critical of my, my, of my delivery of the song, whatever it may be. I'm a big time perfectionist, especially when I think more so as a producer, that's more, it, it comes more out of the producer in me than it does the artist in me because, you know, we can't give our fans anything less than perfection of us as an artist. I mean, I don't think we're not going to sell it to the fans if, if we don't believe it, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But I mean, I'm just so thankful that, God, man, 
who can say that like you and I, and you know, my peers are able to really go in there and record whatever we want to record. You know, that's, that's such a great, it's such a, a different sense of freedom and a whole, it's very, I don't know. It's I just feel like it's, it's very liberating and satisfying at the same time. It's weird. Of course, I'm an ADD squirrel. So like uh, the, the only problem lately is because I'm so liberated, um, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do rock. I'm going to do punk. And then the people I'm with are like, yo, <laughs> yo, <laughs> yeah, what are we yeah. putting out? And, and honestly, it's, it's finding that sweet spot because, and it's finding the right people. It's finding the right team. It's finding the right folks. I, I don't think it was until my last two records that I, honestly, it was until La Novela that it was supposed to be a bigger project, but the pandemic happened it made me kind of reevaluate my plan because I've, I've always yeah. had one since the moment I, I got into the industry, I knew how I wanted to do this. And sometimes people can call that calculating. But for me, it's like, I've always known that I was going to be a performer. I was just going to do it my way. And that yeah. just, that's just is what it is. I want to talk a little bit about your English music, because I, yeah. I don't think that that gets enough love as it should, because you were one of the few artists at the time and even currently that does not only writes the English music, obviously, but also performs it. So where do you feel in the space now with, with your legacy and, and where you are when it comes to dabbling in that because I know we've spoken before yeah privately about about where you wanted to be and I'll, and I'm gonna let you express that here yeah but it was like you know back in the day when you were with Sony and and all these things were happening there was an opening for English music but there was something there was an edge to that that opening yeah no I've always enjoyed writing English music of course I started writing English before I started writing Spanish Tejano you know, because I've always been heavily influenced by pop music, country music, folk music. I mean, you name it. All of these so many different genres have been part of my upbringing, you know, as a kid at like five or six years old. I mean, God, if you look at my vinyl collection, it, it's pretty it is so broad. Like we have so I have so many things that I like to listen to. Um, from Glenn Miller to Linda Ronstadt to Pat Benatar to, I, I mean, the Commodores. I mean, it, it goes, the list goes on. You know, recording my first album, I got to put, you know, I'm Over You, Forever You and Me, which were two English songs. And then JJ and I wrote a song called Here We Stand because we were highly influenced by Gloria Stefan at the time. So we were, you know, still writing Tejano, but we were still continuing to write country. Um, actually, country music, is like super easy for me to write. I can write it very fast, very quickly, very easily. It comes very natural to me because I'm also a country music fan. I'm more a traditional country music fan than anything else. So I, I have so many songs that I've written that I've never recorded or I've never given to an artist to record. But to be recognized, you know, once Sony allowed me to, because I was starting to add more country into my shows because I felt like, man, I have this. It was kind of like when I first started playing timbales in, in the industry and, and, and playing my guitar, really no other females were playing instruments 
you know, Patsy was playing the trumpet, of course. And, um, you know, but really there weren't any females in our industry that were actually playing instruments. And because I knew how, how I know how to play instruments, I'm like, you know what, I need to start utilizing that and putting that into my show for as entertainment purposes. So that's why I added the timbales and that's why I added the guitar. So I started to, you know, do more country. Then I picked up Wrangler and with more reason with Wrangler as my sponsor, the whole cowgirl look that just came natural to me and became kind of my signature in the, you know, nineties, mm-hmm. it just made sense. Yeah. So once, once I got with Sony and they, uh, got air when that I was recording with Vince Gill, uh, that I was going to want to record with him and he wanted to record with me. You're like, we want to record with each other. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I want to record with you, but, but I'm still waiting. <laughs> right. Um, and, and, you know, again, here we go with the creative freedom, you know, they didn't care where I recorded as long as I got them the album by the deadline. That's really all that they cared about. And so, you know, in talking about this advancements, I used every single penny for my recordings. I didn't keep any of the advancements that I got uh, to buy a car or a house or anything like that. I used it for what it was for. And that was for my recording. And so that's when I said, you know what, we can afford to go record in Nashville. Let's go record in Nashville. So I recorded half in San Antonio, half in Nashville. That's when I got the attention of Sony Nashville and uh, they wanted to meet with me, uh, which I was super excited about because I had already done uh, Be A Star, which was a, a show in Nashville, like a, like a, like a, it was a competition. So uh, fans were, had already seen me on there. And so, you know, I was like, okay, let's see what they have to say, what, what they're going to allow me to do. Cause my, my goal was to, to do an all country album. That's really what I always wanted to do. In meeting with the head of Sony, the whole uh, meeting didn't go as planned. I, I basically blew my opportunity to record in Nashville because when I sat there with my parents, it's, mind you, we walk into this humongous office, right? It's super intimidating. And there's this man sitting there in this humongous desk and you know, he's like, so, you know, you're recording with Vince. That's really awesome. Like, yes. How did that come about? How did he, in other words, he's like, how did he want to record with you? You know, it's kind of how he worded it in so many words. And, uh, we kind of told him how the whole thing came about. And, uh, the next question was, well, how do you, what can you tell me about this Emilio guy? And mind you, Emilio was recording with, with their competition, which was Capital. So I'm like, oh, Emilio, our Emilio <laughs> is exactly what I said. And he's like, yeah, Emilio, I go, Emilio and invite him. He's like, yeah. I'm like, well, what, I mean, what do you want to know about him? I mean, he's amazing. You know, he's, and he's like, well, what, 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 what makes him think that he can, you know, come in here and do country music. And that did it for me. It just, it pissed me off uh, beyond belief. And I got very defensive and, um, just compared him to his top artist, which was Alan Jackson, who he wound up opening up for, by the way. And um, <laughs> I just said, uh, well, I'm sorry, but your Alan Jackson is no Emilio. I mean, he, he doesn't have half of the talent Emilio does. He doesn't have half of the versatility that Emilio does. And I wasn't speaking, I wasn't lying. So I never heard from that, that man again. But it's okay because, you know, I had my integrity. I left with my integrity and I wasn't going to allow someone to insult my genre because he represents our genre and I wasn't going to allow that to happen. I don't care who it is at the end of the day. I wasn't concerned about that. Nobody's going to talk shit about 
someone that I consider my family and someone I know that is extremely talented, you know, that was making waves. So that kind of was that for, for recording in Nashville, (laughs) but, um, you know, I've continued to write English and record English and I do a lot of English in my shows. You know, I do a lot of eighties rock too. I love eighties rock and the fans just kind of have really embraced it. And, you know, recording with the divas too, I got to, you know, do, do some country stuff with their, with them too. And, you know, even though I'm going to be retiring, I have a lot that I could still do musically. I mean, I know I can knock out another 10 albums if I wanted to. It's definitely in me. I definitely have the material and I definitely, but I want to continue more to write and produce, you know, and and contribute in that way. But, but I, I still uh, plan on, I'll start my Christian project in February. That is something that is extremely important to me. That's a goal of mine, mostly because I, it's my final thank you to God. Like, thank you for giving me this career. And I'm going to thank you by praising your name through music. And so I'll be starting that. People are like, what about your duets album? What about a country album? I'm like, oh my God, well, I'll never retire if I do those. But, you know. <laughs> I mean, you may not. I mean, I, mean I, I do have to ask, like, what happens if it just changes and you don't? I don't see it changing. I don't see it changing at all for me because I do have, you know, other, other goals that I feel very strongly about that my heart is really looking forward to. Like I said, I can still continue to write and give other people my music and produce them, which is really what I enjoy more. Uh, the studio process is my favorite. I prefer it about a hundred times more than being on stage, hands down. Nice. So there's been something that that has come up through the grapevine a few times, and I've always meant to to talk to you about it. And it is the infamous time, supposedly, that you were given a Tejano Music Award and then it was taken back. That yeah. that is okay. So so just for anyone who is wondering, <laughs> there is, and, and you're like, what story? Okay, pues you're yeah. the first. You've been living under a rock, and you're the first one to hear it. I have heard of a story that, um, you know, it was a televised broadcast. To top it all off, that that was also yeah. the 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 kicker. But there is no footage of said televised broadcast, which has made it almost a myth in the Tejano music industry that you were given a Tejano Music Award, and it was. That it didn't really happen. And, and now yeah. I want you to dispel this mythos. Was it fact or fiction? No, it was definitely a fact. Yo! Um, you know, Yo! Yeah. I cannot believe it. Are you serious? It's weird because in coming up in the time that I did, which I'm very thankful for, I, I, I learned a lot from the people before me, the women before me, which was only five women when I started. And that's nothing. Five women, really? Prior to that, there was just Lydia Mendoza, you know? So when you come in and you start, you get compared, obviously. That's kind of one of the first things. And, you know, Selena and I, because we were the same age, you know, it started out great when we were kids, when we were 10, when we met. Everything was so innocent and fun. It wasn't until my first album at 17. So mind you, we'd been friends already for seven years and growing up in the industry together. Mind you, she had already been in the industry a few years before me already. So we, you know, we didn't really look at it like that. But when she and I first came to, you know, when the 90s started coming and things started getting really big, you know, 
they started putting us up against each other. You know, all of a sudden you become each other's competition, which we thought was completely stupid. But, you know, it's just the nature of the beast, too. People don't understand that I was an underdog for a long time, you know, in the shadow of Selena, if you will, for lack of better words. Even though we were so totally different performers, totally different performers. Here's a good example that one is very R&B based and the other one was pop and country based. And this is what's interesting looking at it now in this era of music industry Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. because there's so much variety and there's so much blending for me, I can see the clear difference and I don't. I don't understand where the comparisons are now, but I can totally see why with only five freaking people, you literally, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. Like you're, you're going to compare, but just out of sheer fact that you are a woman for no other reason other than that. Yeah. And, and I mean, I will tell you this and the reason I'm I'm bringing her up when this whole award thing is going to come up is because she was, she wasn't responsible of course, but I'm saying, Well, okay, so what happened was, it was, um, God, I don't even remember what year it was. I want to say... I can't even tell you because it supposedly doesn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) I want to say, and if you were at the, if you were at the the Hano Music Awards in the Alamo Dome, the year that they, that it looked like Aztec themed production, that's the time I'm talking about. Okay. Aztec themed Tejano Music Awards. Yeah, um... I want to say it ha- because it was for a song that I had on my Naughty 4 CD, Quiero Se Tomate. It was a song called Ni Mas Ni Menos, which was more of a crossover because they used to have a crossover category, crossover song. And that could consist of pop, country, anything crossover, anything that wasn't ranchera or cumbia okay. based. Okay. okay. So they have this category, no crossover. My song, Ni Mas Ni Menos, did well, but... I wasn't expecting that award, to be honest with you. And Selena was nominated in that same category. I can't remember what song it was, but it it was a song that did really well for her. And so, hands down, because mind you, I I hadn't won a Tejano Music Award yet at all. My first time I was ever nominated was 1983. Now, every fan knows out there that I didn't get a chance to win until three years or four years after she was gone. Yeah. So I was very patient to say the least. I was very frustrated at the time too, because I knew that we were doing well as well. I knew that we were selling records, maybe not as well if you had to put us together, but I was, I was making a name for myself. I was doing well. But one of the things I'd always remembered was I wasn't going to base my career on award wins. Okay. Okay. I was going to continue to persevere and be strong and do this. So here I am. I was at this award show. I was about to present an award. So I was off to the side on the stage and I can see the presenters and I could see the stage and it was a humongous stage, dude. It was like ginormous. And so I hear the category. Okay. And it's so boomy in the Alamo Dome that it's hard for you to hear exactly what they're, you know, clearly, but you know, more or less what's happening. Right. Yeah. So there's a person next to me that's in production that has a headphone on just like you. And uh, there's two presenters that are presenting the award and they were from some, they weren't 
Tejano artists. They were some from some like novella or something because they used to get a lot of uh, guests mm-hmm. be part of the Tejano Music Awards at the time. So I can't tell you who they were. I just remember they were like from Mexico or somewhere. You know, they, they were, were Spanish someone famosos. Mostly. Okay, someone yeah, that we yeah, don't know okay. who they are, but they were yeah, famosos. We don't know who they are. <laughs> yeah. So they say the category, and then they say the winner. And I swear I heard my name and I'm like, did they say Shelly Lottis? And the person that's standing in the production is going, go, go. He's there. He's telling me to go. And I'm waiting like, because mind you, I had already been nominated and never won. So I'm like, there's no way now I can't win this award because Selena's going to get it. I mean, it's hands down. She's going to get it. Right. And I was like, no, no, no. You know, and I kept saying, no, I wasn't going to go up there. Cause I, I felt I knew that it, I didn't win it. Okay. All of a sudden I look out and I see my Manny representative, Pete coming up to the podium. And then I'm like, Oh, it's me. Right. <laughs> uh Oh, that is, uh Oh, so then they tell me go. So I do. Okay. And I explored the moment that I came down the stage, Pete, the same person, they used to give you like a mock-up, no, I think then they give you the ones. Now it's a mock. You give it back and then they send you. And he's like, asking me for the award. And I'm like, holding it, confused. And he says, Shelly, a mistake. You didn't win that award. And so I'm like, what do you mean they made a mistake? I said, I just went up there and made a fool of myself. And so I give it to him. And I remember I just walked straight back to the restroom. And I just, I remember it clear as day. I sat there like someone punched me in the gut. And I thought to myself, how is this industry and this organization going to do this to me? Right? Mm-hmm. Is what I was thinking. In that moment, my father walks through the door and I just look at him like, and he just picks me up and he hugged me. And he said, do not hang your head do not. And I will never forget that day. I will never forget it. And word has it that Selena was very upset because she had won the award. They wanted her to go up there and thank the, she refused. She refused to go up there and accept it on my behalf, which I thought was, was pretty awesome, you know, but I never got an apology. Wow. I think they, someone went out there and said something that they had made a mistake. And I just remember people booing. So the other half of the mythos of this infamous moment is that, yes, they went up there, said that they had made a mistake and then redid the taping and asked her to come up. Now, mind you, I didn't know that she didn't go up. Um, that's where, that's where the story stops. No, no, no. I'm just telling you like the, the infamous story is that that's where it stops. And I have heard from multiple archivists, multiple people that they can't find the footage of that day because to them, because to them, that's probably one of the biggest, the biggest, Oh my God moments in, in Tejano music. And let's just say that you were supposed to be the winner. Uh, let's just say that that was the case. And they just said, nah, never mind. Like, no, that's not what we had initially planned. It's still wild that that happened because wild story. And I felt more like, because mind you, um, the first time I ever performed at the Hanna Music Awards, I was, I was 10 years old. 
And you're how old at this point? I, I'm, I'm curious at, at the point of this story. We were like, in, we were like 22, 23. Jesus, Mary Joseph. So you're telling me that literally you're doing this, doing this, all y'all are doing this. And literally you're 22. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, right? I mean, I'm sorry. I, I mean, know that sounds awful, but nah, fam, that's the no. worst. You're a young adult well, see, and that sucks. Well, because mind you too, as far as the awards con- are concerned, I had my very first nomination was in 83. Of course, nobody knew who I was and I was just a young kid. But then after Tu Solo Tu came out from 1989, all the way up till I won, I was a finalist in the vocalist and entertainer. I was the only nominee that did not change from 1989 to 1998. All the other girls changed. Jennifer Pena, Elida Reina, Stephanie Montiel. All of these girls were changing, but I was still consistently nominated and had did not win until 1998. So at this time, I'm feeling like here I am being dedicated to my award show being there every year, you know, anytime they called to ask me to do something, I was there. And then this happens. It's like a major slap in the face. And, and I was very upset to be honest. That was probably 95, 90, 94, 95. And then when 96 came, they wanted me to, no, it was 94, 95. They wanted me to perform and I did not attend the awards. That's when I went to Nashville to record the following year, they called my father and they were like, we really want Shelly to perform. And I had to think about it. I was like, I don't know yet. I don't know if I want to do this. So that's when you see my performance in 96 at the Tejano music awards was the year after I had said, no, I'm not, I'm going to sit this one out. But, um, yeah, it, it was embarrassing and it was hurtful and, Uncalled for and they, and still, I, and they still haven't said sorry like that's what boggles my mind like you have been nominated <laughs> since you have won since and at no point has the organization said hey you know what because it, it's it's been the same dudes <laughs> it's not, it, hasn't, it hasn't changed a whole heck of a lot so um you know it's still the same body of organization and there hasn't still been an apology for that yeah that's just kind of crazy but i mean I was thinking black and I would replay it in my mind. I was like, how could this have happened? And the only, and, and I'm, and here I am, right. You, you wouldn't think that even that it happened to me that I would be trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. Right. But yeah. here I am, here I am. And I'm thinking to myself, maybe the teleprompter said my name because I was supposed to be presenting next. I don't know. I mean, Girl, come know. on. No, they have to. Re- <laughs> no, I'm sorry. No, they don't. They have an envelope. Yeah, then they did. They did have an envelope. Yeah. So that kind of sucks. Just, I'm just going to sit here with my fruit, bu- fruit juice box <laughs> and just say they had an envelope. There's a difference. They have yeah. an envelope. They're reading. from. Look, at the end of the day, whatever the, the thing, the, the end of it was, I mean, you still stuck with the industry. You still it's interesting you're you still stuck with the industry you're still getting nominated and that says a lot about your character in a situation and in an industry that honestly I mean has little to no respect for the women that are in it who actually shape it and that's the truth the women are the ones like yes we have a lot of uh, of men who who yes they've done their thing not discounting them at, at all they are amazing I have interviewed some of them for this podcast but yeah. When, when we ask, you know, who are the people that are 
kind of pushing it forward, it is the women. It is the women of the industry. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I was really wanting to start this movement of women, you know, that, that I show support for them and help them find their voices in this industry because we've, we've seen it all too many times. Shelly, we, we've been going through the mythos and now uh, let's get into the, the real reality. Now, when we talk about the reality of being a musician, I think a lot of the times we fail to acknowledge that there is safety that we, in, in certain cases, take for granted. In right. my case, I was performing at the Guadalupe Conjunto Festival. And that is where it was a day after the Manchester shooting. If anyone remembers that, that was a really big Manchester bombing or Manchester shooting. I'm not quite sure what exactly it was, but it was an Ariana Grande concert. It had literally happened the day before in London. But I remember it clearly because the next day I'm performing at a festival mm-hmm. and a man comes up on stage with a luchador mask right in the middle of my set. There are some videos of the full set out there on YouTube of my performance there. Take a quick look at the body language because uh, I was so scared. I didn't express it. I wasn't I wasn't trying to call too much attention to it because that's usually what people like that want. Right, right. But somehow, despite two police officers... And my label, it was, it was so quick that this gentleman got up on stage and started harassing me and my band members. Oh, wow. And nobody was getting this person off stage. And the response was that I was dressed oddly. So it would only stand to reason that this person was with my band. And this is where a lot of the times we take safety for granted. And I, to this day, remember that. Things have changed since that event in regards to how how we do events, how safe I feel and who is around what entrances. And we and we really do take a look at that. Thankfully, nothing bad happened, you know, thankfully. Yeah. But that has always stuck with me. And that wasn't that long ago. So if you look at the video of that and you see the date that happened and it's kind of one of those things that it really it really shocked me that nothing was ever done or said. If anything, I was rushed off stage. Because I was trying to pause and they were not trying to give me any extra time so I could perform. Yeah. Because it wasn't anything I did, but still right. it, yeah. it is what it is. Right. Now I'm, I'm curious, Shelly, because I know, um, have you experienced in regards to, to safety and, and how, how has that affected your life and, and how you perform? Oh man. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's been many, many instances where fans, you know, make their way up on stage Usually when they're intoxicated. Son bien bravos. <laughs> That's usually when they have, but the, I mean, it happens so many times. I mean, there's been times where God in Midland, I remember uh, a guy getting on stage, uh, at, at, you know, and I don't mind taking pictures with fans while I'm performing. I will, you know, crouch down, whatever, take pictures and stuff Same. like that. But, you know, let me, let me go back to, I studied martial arts for five years for a reason. So, you know, there's certain situations that I can get out of and there's certain situations, situations that I can really hurt somebody if I really wanted to, but of course we're not invincible, you know? So, and when, and when it's unexpected and that's one of the things that my, my Shihan 
that was so amazing with him was because he would grab me, like he would hide in the hall. And when I would come to class, he would like grab me to see what I would do. So he wanted it to become second nature for me, which it did. But I remember prior to my studying martial arts, this guy got on stage and uh, took a picture, but his hand moved down to my butt. And I remember my father saw that and followed him outside. And that wasn't pretty, but that was one situation. Another situation was a, a fan grabbed my leg while I was playing my timbales and you know, it's okay if they touch your leg sometimes or whatever, but he wouldn't let it go. Ooh. I was like, you know, kind of trying to move, like looking at him nicely, like, you know, let me go, you know, let me go. But he wouldn't. So I had my stick and just whacked him in the hand. And, you know, and it, it, let me tell you a quick story about him. He uh, not that long ago reached out to me on my social media, not knowing it was me. He went on my fan page. And I guess they see Shelly Lotta's fans, so they think it's someone whole, someone different. So he says on there, I remember meeting Shelly Lottis in an event, and I was grabbing her leg, and, and she hit my hand, and she was, and it's so ironic that I remembered that. Of all of the performances I've done, I remembered it. And he was saying, you know, that I was rude about it, and how about we, we share this story, and it goes viral, and all this stuff. So I reached out to him, and he told me that he had worked for city council in Pecos. <gasps> no. I know, I know a lot of people in Pecos, okay? I know a lot of important people in Pecos. So, of course, I call a friend of mine, and I'm like, do you know this person? Was this person? Part? No, this person was not ever on it. So I, I uh, responded back to him, and I said, you know, I remember this event, this instance you're talking about, this incident. I said, but let me tell you, just because we're entertainers, we're human beings, and we have every right for you not to want to touch us, okay? So... I literally called him out. I, I mean, I said that he wasn't anybody that was on city council and all this stuff. And then he's like, oh, okay, well, I'm sorry. Do you think you can send me a signed picture? I was like, okay, this dude. Anyway. <laughs> the absolute shock on my face. I know no one can see it right now, but his mouth is open. You know how people are. So then um, more recently, a lady went on stage <gasps> and she was how recently no and now i need to know about a month ago <gasps> no <laughs> yeah and oh my god a, she i'm trying to remember where we were performing where were we my guys will remember i'm gonna ask them right now while we're on the interview um she went on stage and um wouldn't let go of me just just wouldn't let go of me i mean nobody was coming up nobody was coming up to like get her off you know and <laughs> You're like, yo, <laughs> she wound up tripping over my guitar player's foot pedals and like just falling hard, like Ooh. hard on stage. And finally the guys came, you know, the security, but you know, it, it's too, too late. You know, it's, it's, it's they, so much can happen. You see what I'm saying? But more like on a more serious uh, note, a few years back, I want to say early two thousands, I, got a call from some friends of mine from, from KXTN. They said that, um, that there was this gentleman that would call every single day requesting my music, but that the things that he was saying was not quite right. Just things that aren't normal. 
a, a normal fan calling and requesting music would say. So for them to want to call me, it was happening more often and on a more serious level. So they gave me his name and I didn't know who this gentleman was. I knew he was from San Antonio. Okay. So ironically, back in the day when KXTN would have remotes, they would snap Polaroids of fans and give it to the fans. Okay. So this dude wound up showing up at one of the remotes. They had remembered who he, he was because thankfully the, you know, KXTN spread it among the D- other DJs to kind of keep an eye on this dude. He's been requesting Shelly's music and it, he, you know, it just doesn't sound right. So he shows up at this remote and they realize this is the dude that's calling about Shelly. So they're like, Hey, how about we snap a picture of you by our van? So they got a picture of him. And gave it to me so that I would know what he looked like. Mm -hmm. So then he starts calling my office and leaving messages on my office number saying off the wall stuff like, uh, like as if we had had a relationship and uh, he was making it known that he was going to go see me at the San Antonio rodeo because I was going to be performing there and that he had something for me that I was never going to forget I then was already studying martial arts. I had all of like my Shihan and another one of my senseis that were by my side the whole time. I had in turn called, since he was calling so much, I was able to make a report of it and kind of mm-hmm. keep track of, you know, that this person is calling and kind of being harassing and saying stuff that's a little bit, you know, that's a lot of threatening. So mm-hmm. come to find out the my brother was, you know, a San Antonio police officer. So he recommended friends, you know, that were detectives and stuff, uh, be on the lookout for me on this night at the rodeo. Needless to say, he never showed up, but they ran his name and he had some other warrant Mm -hmm. that they needed to take him in. Mm -hmm. So they had what you call the dog watch waiting for him at his house. And, um, when they went into his house, they told me this, we can't tell you what we found. But he definitely meant harm to you. He went into jail for other charges, which happened to be for assault, rape, you know, sexual assault, kidnapping, crazy stuff that he had been doing already. I started getting letters from him from prison. And, you know, I had to go through a whole thing with the, you know, the, 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 the jail and, and, and all. It was just a big, big old mess. That was one serious one. The second one was when I lived in Lubbock, uh, I, you know, co-owned a restaurant and had a lot of farmer customers that were farmers and had no idea who I was and what I did. They just knew me as someone as being there at the restaurant and someone they saw every day. And when you have customers, you, you, you have a rapport with them. You know what they like to eat, you know, how they like their coffee, blah, blah, blah. You stand there talking to them for hours. And so I knew this one gentleman, uh, Stuart Russell. And, uh, you know, he was a very nice man, whatever. But then he started calling me at the restaurant and it was just odd. So when I wound up moving back to San Antonio, uh, I started getting le- uh, messages from him on my fan page, off the wall messages, just things that a normal person doesn't say to someone. Again, in his mind, we had, an, uh, um, you know, some sort of relationship. 
And uh, it escalated throughout the years. He started showing up at my shows. He would send me things uh, threatening through social media. He would post about me constantly. And so I wound up having to make police reports in about five different cities that he was showing up at. And then, of course, you know, the big one was he showed up in Vegas. I remember that. Which was really bad because it was scary. He wasn't allowed to go anywhere near me because, mind you, I had already had he wasn't allowed to be anywhere near me. But, you know, he still shows up. Having to not be able to be myself and very personable in Vegas that year was hard because um, uh, fans are used to that. And I was used to that. But uh, it got really serious. I had to leave, er- uh, you know, earlier on that Sunday. Yeah. I had to go the back way. It was just a big old mess. But you can't take things lightly. And it's hard because you never know the mentality of the person that you're encountering at a show or through social media. You know, sometimes because our industry is one of the only industries that fans can get so close to us, it's a blessing and a curse. If you don't get close to them, then fans feel that you're not being personable, that you're stuck up, that you don't want to do this. When they're not realizing that we're also in harm's way sometimes. So it's dangerous at a lot of times. It's safety. It's just like, you know what, It man or woman, it doesn't matter. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's just there's a sense of, of ownership for us as people. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I'm an artist and I own Mm -hmm. this. I own my body. I own what I do with it. I own the the art that I create. You all enjoy it. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I give it to you to enjoy. But my agency of who I am and my body is still mine. And I think that's the disconnect a lot of the times, whether yes. it's 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 male or female, because there could there have been, you know, for me, there have been women that have messaged me off the wrong way. I've had uh, significant others of, of people who I have, right. I have never engaged with that. The only reason I engaged with with their significant other was because I was on a radio interview. And they right. literally call me up and say, you know, why are you talking to my man? It's like, girl, do you do you message the big name artists like this? Because I don't think you would. Right. I don't think right. I don't think you I don't think right. you would be this bold to message. Like, like, here's an example. Like, I don't think you would you would be bold to message Shelly. Like, yo, because she would put out your message and then look and then look at the reputation that you would you would just put in for for your significant other who's on a radio station. It's, right. it's just that level. And I'm not no. saying that, that things don't happen out of pocket in this industry. I mean, it's just, you know, people are human, but my God, like, you know, just like, that's, it's, it's really strange. And so, yeah. but it's safety at the end of the day, it's safety. Like it's, it doesn't matter what the gender of the person is because yeah. for me, it has happened with both men and women. And I have had to yeah. say, no, please like, let us, let's cut this out. Like I, I'm not consenting to whatever this is. And they don't like, you know, you giving like the men sometimes it's, it hasn't happened a lot lately, but it's happened in my career where they don't want you there. They get upset if their, their man is like, you know, oh my God, I'm a fan. I love her. This is Shelly Lottis. I want to take a picture with her. It never fails. Cause most, there's a lot of women out there who, if their husband or boyfriend, whatever wants to take a picture, ironically, the phone's not working. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I love to make jokes <laughs> when that happens. And I tell the women, oh, but they sure do work when you're doing selfies. Uh-huh. Okay. And I always tell them, <laughs> you know, and I, and I always tell them, I'm like, trust me, I'm the last person you got to worry about wanting your man. Trust me. The last person you would want to worry about. No. Um, <laughs> happens, but. Oh, Lord. Sometimes you always have to go by your gut gut feeling. If you feel something is not right, then it's, it's not right. You know, and we just have to learn to listen to that inner voice that we have. And, you know, and it's sad, you know, it's hard when you are dealing with people who are intoxicated because to them, they're not doing anything wrong. They're not crossing those. They're not being too touchy feely or, you know, making you feel uncomfortable. uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It, it happens. It happens a lot. It happens a lot. In regards to why you're the last person they should worry about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a good segue, Shelley. That's a good segue, Shelley. I mean, even women. I mean, I have had married women like jokingly <laughs> say, "Oh, you're my girl crush," and right, honey, I'm her, she's my girl crush, and I'm like, you know, that's cute. It's, you know, I mean, but I don't. I don't take I, it. To, I love how the husband you know. goes. I love how the husband would probably be like, okay, this is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and it happens a lot. It, it, it's so funny. It's so hilarious. But guys, you know, most of the time, most of the time we joke about it, but it they is take it in there. stride. I mean, they do take it in stride, but that's because men are so, are so complicated yes, and I so know. wild out in these streets. I think that's why they're like, eh. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. But, you know, but it is, it is out there. You know, we are, um, you know, more, uh, susceptible to people wanting to, you know, get closer, get touchy feely, um, get possessive whatever the case is, you know, it's just kind of part of what we do, but it doesn't mean we have to tolerate the lack of boundary, you know? Yes. We still have to keep that there by all means. You know, that little emoji, a little wallet with the little wings on it, just flying away. That's me right now. I'm the advertiser. This is an ad for me. Veronique. Go listen to my album. I have two out right now, Crying and La Novela off of Next Gen Latinx Records. All jokes aside, please go listen to the music on your favorite streaming platform or buy it online at veroniquemedrano.com. And I mean it. Go listen to it. Go listen to it at your mom's house. Because I mean, if you don't listen to her, at least listen to me. And that's been your paid ad. Now, in regards to that wonderful segue you gave me now, uh, it's interesting how sexuality does have a very large role to play in who you are as an artist and how you portray yourself. Now, there's a lot of artists who over the last, I don't know, maybe the maybe the pandemic is is un- unveiling new things. But in, in our industry, there's been it's interesting, the conversation that's happening because ours is definitely the one that is so staunchly Hispanic or Mexican yeah. or Latinx right. or however however you identify yourself, but to the right. point that it it tries to stick with tradition to a fault. And right. this also is within sexuality. Now, yes. at least from what I am aware of, the first open artist was independent. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one out of San Antonio. 
mm-hmm. then there was one, they were both, they both came out around the same time, one out of San Antonio and one out of uh, the Valley. And I remember yeah. this clear as day because they just kept, they got hammered. They got yeah. hammered by every single person in the industry, despite how great their music was, but right. it was because they were out. Right. And now we have more artists that are out that are more accepted, but that has taken right. time. So let me, let me paint the picture for you. This was in 2013 when I started and they also started Yeah. to now you have a very interesting relationship with your sexuality. And, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious when you finally felt comfortable to be out, but mm-hmm. in this industry, do you recall around what year it was? I want to say 2011 which isn't that long ago. No, it's not. It's about 10 years um, ago. Yeah, it's it's not really that long ago. I mean, I, I think back to, I think the first person that I met in my industry that I knew was gay was David Olivares because I had met and talked with him back in the day. You're talking 90s. Oh. And, uh, you know, we became friends and I had already been somewhat hiding my sexuality at this point and just kind of remember feeling like I I take it back to when I was a kid. I always had lived my life trying not to disappoint. Uh, My biggest fear was, first of all, not disappointing my parents. I've always and I don't think I've ever really openly admitted that to my mom and dad ever, you know. You know, because I tell my mom even now, there's so much about my life that my mom doesn't even know about, you know, the struggles that I went through and um, the relationships that I was in and exactly what I went through in those relationships. So as a kid, you know, you kind of have better relationships with one gender more than the other. Right. So I always felt like I just had a better connection with girls. I just felt like I just better related to them, you know, deep inside. I would never admit it openly, but, you know, from attraction to just having that connection. But at the same time, I was about having little boyfriends and stuff like that. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I wasn't pretending cause I really did genuinely like that person. I think then it was more of the person that I was talking to you know, because I'm not going to say that there weren't guys that I that I didn't felt like compatible with or that I could, you know, relate to. I mean, I had boyfriends that, you know, um, were great guys and whatnot, but it wasn't until like maybe the early 90s that I really started to venture out into not being afraid to, you know, have a relationship with a woman. And, you know, and I hid it for a long time. And it was funny because my best friends, you know, who are are, are a gay couple, have been together for like over 30 years. They would go to the gay bars. And um, I remember they took me a couple of times and I was paranoid. I was paranoid because I didn't want anyone to see me. And I was spotted a couple of times. You know, I wasn't with anyone, but I was there. And you know what they say, you're with someone, they're going to associate you as you know, being gay. So I was a lot more paranoid back then. And I hit it quite a bit. But we have to think of the time too. I mean, my God, it's the 90s. There's, you know, the, the AIDS epidemic, there's all these different things happening in the 90s. And mind you, I was a little kid and learning about it now. It's just, I know that a lot of us wish that it was better 
but the yeah. fact that from the let's just say 91 to 2011 which is when you're saying mm-hmm. you, you were finally more open that is what that's almost that's 20 years right yeah at least that's 20 that's 20 years like if, if we're just given just like a, a, a number of 91 to 2011 right. that's 20 years that you yeah. were hiding your sexuality with and and it's just and it was it's just it, it's jarring because you think oh it wasn't that long ago and, it, and, it, and it's not only it's not only my, my sexuality but I have been let down in relationships period even when I was dating guys you know they screwed me over whether it was, you know, being unfaithful was always huge. And I don't know if that is because I was always gone. I was gone a lot in the nineties. I was gone six days a week, every week I was on the road, six days a week. So I never really had a whole lot of time to, to build a strong relationship, if you will, I guess you can say, you know, the one guy that I, that I talked to for a little while that I thought, Hey, I, I could possibly, you know, wind up marrying this guy, you know, maybe, I don't know. But in the, it's one of those things where you're telling yourself that, but way in the back of your mind, you're like, nah, you know what I'm trying to say? If you know oh, how, what I'm oh. saying, sometimes you just oh kind of like, you just kind of go through the motions sometimes, you know what I'm saying? Well, that was, that was one of those things for me too. Yeah. It's not that I'm, I'm I mean, like not saying that I was always kind of trying to give the relationship a chance. But how are you going to give something a chance if in the back of your mind, you know, you're not going to give it your whole hundred percent or, or you know that that's just not the relationship for you. You see what I'm saying? But when you're young, you oh, yeah. think about those things, you know, those are all experiences you learn as you get older. And so, you know, when that so, one guy just totally, you know, it was like, here I am, I'm going to give a, you know, a regular relationship a shot and then boom, it's like, okay, you know, can anybody, can anybody, somebody, anybody be faithful, anybody, you know? And then, um, and then I started to meet, you know, open, open myself up to meeting women. I started talking to, to this one that I started to develop a relationship with that lived in Lubbock. And, um, you know, it got really, it got really, this was in 2005, and it got really serious pretty fast. You know, I felt differently. I felt um, there's just this strong um, urgency to give it my all, you know, like to really say, hey, okay, because I always put my career first. I did do that. I, I did, you know, um, commit myself 100% to being on the road and being committed to being an artist. But that was just kind of a, a, a part of me that, you know, it wasn't right. And I shouldn't have had to put my life on hold. I shouldn't have, but because I was again, worried about letting my parents down and I was deathly afraid of disappointing them. Deathly afraid because they had so much expectations from me, you know, at any point were you worried that you would become a statistic. And I say this in regards to statistically and it's happening even now as much as y'all think that that things have changed and have progressed yeah even now kids are still 
kids are homeless because they expressed their desired, you know, um, they're not accepted by family or whatever. And and they get disowned and they get left out. And were at any point, did that ever cross your mind? Uh, not that I would feel disowned. No, I never felt that to be honest. Because you're saying there was fear and anxiety. And so that's where I'm curious if at any point you thought maybe something. Because, because let me tell you, I mean, I, I give my all to my parents, you know, they, they, they really, you know, sacrificed a lot for me, but where it was hard for me was because not only was I the child, the baby of the family, um, but we were start, we started this business together. So my personal life didn't exist because it filtered, it filtered into my business. And Mm. I never, I always felt like I never had privacy at my mom's. Um, so, so I was just always in my head, whether I was attracted to a girlfriend of mine or, you know, I was always in my head and I would remember that the only outlet I had was to write it down. And unfortunately, even that was found (laughs) and, and red. And it's like, you know, I felt like, golly, I don't really have anything for me. I don't, you know, that's kind of where I was at a, at a younger age, but I never felt like my parents were going to like kick me out of the house or anything like that. I just, I was afraid to express what I was thinking and feeling. I would tell friends at times, uh, especially my best friends. They were the two that really knew everything about me at that time. They were really the only ones that knew anything about me. And um, so I kind of just kept that hidden, you know, within myself. And and it's funny because a lot of people knew how close Selena and I were. I hadn't even come to terms with, okay, I'm gay when we had our friendship. So I she passed way even before I, you know, came out. Um, and that... And just for the record, no, I was never attracted. There was that, that is kind of sick to think because that was my friend. That was like my sister, you know, just cause you're gay doesn't mean you like every single woman. I mean, hello, you know, <laughs> hello, there's preference. <laughs> like, <laughs> just like, hello. It's like my sisters, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Um, it was like gay friends. Like they would joke about me and they'd be like, Ooh, you're always around Elita and stuff. I'm like, those are my sisters. Y'all that's gross. I'm like, uh, <laughs> like that. I mean, they're beautiful, but I mean, that's not, no. There's, there's this really weird misconception that just because you are, you're not heterosexual, that for some reason you're just attracted to anything and everything that breathes. Yeah, I know. That's <laughs> not of, how it works. Of, of this, of whatever uh, sexual yeah. orientation it is. That, that, and that's not, that's not how it works. That's not how it goes. So, okay, let's go to 20, 2005. Okay. Okay. Um, it was getting serious. Okay. And um, she wanted me to move to Lubbock. And this is after and how much time like dating? Not even a year, to be honest. Okay. It was quick. So you and I were moving the same in the 2000s. Yeah. yeah. Oh God. What was in the water? What was in the water? I don't know. But, but I, um, I was like, I wanted it more than anything else. I, I wanted to, I wanted to go there because I felt like, damn, you know, here I am in my thirties already. And what personal life do I have really? Mm, Okay. Where I can share who I love with my family, with Mm -hmm. who means the most to me, Mm -hmm. you know, my parents, my sisters, my brother, you know, that's what I wanted more than anything else. 
because I felt like I deserved that. So when I was going to move, she was like, don't tell your parents. I said, I can't do that. I need to tell my parents most, mm-hmm. you know, it's important to me. So I, uh, I mean, I was so scared and mind you, I'm in freaking thirties at this point. Okay. Mm-hmm. I could have just been, look, this is how it is. Take it or leave it. So, <laughs> take it or leave. But I mean, but this, these are my parents. And, um, up until recently, I've always felt like, you know, there's a huge respect level there. Huge. So when I told them they were not upset that I was going to be with a girl, they were upset that I was leaving San Antonio. Oh my God. So they were like, yo, why are you leaving? (laughs) They were more sad that I was leaving San Antonio. Okay. Um, and it was, you know, it was hard, but, uh, you know, let me backtrack a little bit because all of this just comes into play with, with how afraid I was, you know, I left my mother's house and my father's house at like 23. Um, when I moved out on my own, And even then, like my poor mom and dad, and I'm not trying to dog them, but you know, they would call me, um, all the time. That's literally Um, my life. You know? Yeah. They would call (laughs) me all the time. I get you. And so I felt very suffocated sometimes, a lot of times, a lot of times. I'm not going to say sometimes I felt very suffocated a lot of times, but they were very loving about it, but not understanding that I never set boundaries. Mm. And that's where. It was my mistake at a very young age. I, once I was of age, I should have set these boundaries and I didn't. So it was, it just became the norm. You see what I'm saying? I just want to stress that, you know, it's kind of one of those things when you're coming of age. And I mean, Mm -hmm. it wasn't a mistake. Like I know that the, that I did things in my life that, you know what I needed, I needed to have, unfortunately, I needed to have the helicopter mom because the moment that it didn't happen, something bad happened. And, you know, it's just part of life and everyone has their own relationships with their parents, but I can completely understand it's, it's that push pull. It's that push pull of like, I want to give you a lot because you're my parents and you've been so supportive of my career, my life choices. But then at the same time, you're like, but I want something that's mine. And I, and I can understand that completely. And it's, I think it's a struggle a lot in Mexican Latinx homes because we're so tight knit. We are so involved. (laughs) That's sometimes true. No, it's true. So, you know, I stayed there for five years. And still, you know, it was very difficult for me, you know, having a restaurant, which was her dream and my being on the road every week and commuting six hours from Lubbock to San Antonio, six hours back every weekend, I had no days off. Like I felt like our relationship started suffering. I tried to, you know, um, speak on it. And then it took a friend of mine that kind of put, the curiosity of, okay, if I'm curious about this other person, then this relationship isn't right. Right. This isn't the person for me. Nothing ever came about with that friend of mine, or we never had a relationship, but I have to give her the credit for kind of putting that, you know, making me realize, look, Shelly, if you were happy, this wouldn't be happening you know, and it was hard when you're with someone who doesn't really like to talk and communicate. And, you know, uh, because I've always been very introverted. I can still be an introvert at times. I have my moments. 
kids, but I never used to be very outspoken like I am now. I was always just very quiet. My mom used to joke around that whenever she would get mad at me or my I would get in trouble, which wasn't often, but if they would get after me for something, I would go in my room and I would be sad and they would know I would be sad. But the moment they would open the door, I would smile at them. What does that tell you? You know what I'm trying to say? And, and I think about that now and I'm like, back then I was just hiding every emotion I had. After I came back, um, you know, mind you, I had, I had nothing when I came back to San Antonio and my father was like, just come, just, you don't need to bring nothing. Don't bring anything. Just come back home. You know, parents being parents. So you left at 23, at 23 years old and -hmm. we're living on your own, but still having parents around. And it wasn't until you were around your thirties that, and this is a few years. So this is like, let's just say five, six years that you're semi living on your own (laughs) and you leave to Dallas and then to Lubbock, to Lubbock, to Lubbock. I'm so sorry, yeah. to Lubbock. And then things just kind of, they just pop. They just didn't work out. No. And, and you came back and you went back home and you're having to, Oh, Lord. I was only, I was only home for, for a, a couple of months. Okay. Then, then I moved out again. I was like, I can't, I gotta do that. I gotta get, I was living, I went back to sleeping on a cot in, you know, my old room. And, and, uh, I was like, I can't do this. I got to get back on my feet. I got to do this again. And two of my friends were like, you know, my muskas, I have two muskas. I have muska mousy, muska stacy. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason that we're called the Muscas is because Mousy's mom <laughs> named us the three Muska queers. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our nickname for each other. That's why we say Muska. It's just a nickname, but, um, they were like, you need to go out. You need to, you know, come out with us, come hang out. And I've never been like a party girl, never been a drinker. I never, I mean, don't get me wrong. I like to have a drink every now and then, but I've never, that's never, I'm always in clubs performing. So I don't like to always go to clubs. Okay. So they were like, but you need to come with us and, you know, go hang out at the strip and the gay strip, you know, just come, come, just open yourself up to dating. And so I was like, oh, I don't want to do this, you know, but I did. And, you know, girls were trying to talk to me and, you know, I was talking to a few girls and I would tell them, look, I don't want a relationship. I just want to talk and, you know, hang out every now and then, blah, blah, blah. And then I started, you know, I got, I, I met someone, started dating for like six months. That didn't work out. Met someone else, dated her for three years and, I I come to realize about myself is that I'm just a giver. Yeah. Okay. And I'm going to, I'm a giver. I was, I was a giver at my own expense. Okay. Okay. I wasn't reciprocating anything I was giving. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I was, I'm, I'm old school in the sense of, of relationships. Okay. Okay. I'm old school. Like I'm about respect, communication, you know, trust and love. And I've always had this, this vision of love that love is effortless. You know, when people say love hurts to me, love doesn't hurt to me. Love doesn't hurt people. People hurt people to me. Okay. When you love someone, you're going to treat them with respect and you would never want to, you know, cheat on them or anything like that. You know, there's, 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 to me, that's my ideal, what love, what love is. And I had yet to experience that type of love. Okay. And I think that's so hard to express it because literally most of the songs that we sing, that we write about is about 
the painful love, the love that causes pain. And unfortunately, <laughs> that's what sells, <laughs> literally, yeah. sorry. Yeah. But yeah. also in the same token, um, I can definitely attest to that. I've been single for four years after, you know, the most heartbreaking relationship I had been in. And it's funny that you mentioned, it's like, you know, your, your head kind of knows what's going on, but you're trying mm -hmm. to just go by the motions. And I did yeah. that for so long. And it's yeah. like, once you find somebody where it's effortless, it love yeah. is actually supposed to be effortless. Absolutely. And I've realized that over time. Mm -hmm. That's good. And it's good because it's showing growth in you as well. And we're never too old to grow. We're never too think old to grow. We continue to evolve. Do you think it's because we're like kids and we see all this stuff, like every show, every movie, everything that talks about love or a relationship always puts it in such a way like there, there should be antagonism. There should be some type of like conflict. No. Mm -mm. And, and we, and we eat that. If, if you think about yeah. it, we, we all eat it and we go, okay, but then it's unlearning years of that. And that mm -hmm. is just such a struggle. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's true. But you know, the, so I, I found that I was not only a giver, but I was someone who wanted to help fix someone mm. that I knew was damaged. Oh no. And, 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 and my relationship that I was in for three years with this one girl, she was very damaged, very damaged. I tried to love her through it, but I was failing to realize that she had to fix herself. You know, I couldn't do that. Although I supported her in her career that she is doing now, um, I paid for her school and, um, you know, helped her. And so I, now I think, and I'm like, okay, I came into her life for a reason. You know, God brought us together for whatever reason for me to, I don't know, help her on her next journey. Now she's very successful apparently and has her family and stuff. So that's fine. But she also, I, the reason we, we broke up was because she was unfaithful. And, you know, I'm sure that a lot of fans that are listening can relate to that inner voice that's telling you something's wrong. Something's not right. They're doing something or something, and, you know, and they're, and then when you bring it up, they make you feel like you're crazy. For thinking Literally, about, for oh saying my that. God. And I'm like, and then, and then sometimes you question it, right? You're like, you think you're crazy. But then again, that voice, and that's a gift that God gave us. It, that is our inner voice that we should not ignore ever. And I ignored it over and over and over. Right. So I, I got out of that relationship shortly after I got into another relationship, that relationship had a child. Oh. And that was a whole other experience for me as a stepmom, if you will. And I couldn't help but just fall in love with this child. And she and I had this huge bond that was different. Early on, she was already like a month into our relationship. She was already talking to her ex or had never stopped talking to her ex. Oh, so geez. I was basically lied to from the beginning to think that they had already been broken up when they had not been. So I was already lied to from the beginning. And then as four years later, no. Oh my God. Which was a very difficult four years because mind you, I probably would have gone way earlier had there not been a child. Okay. <sighs> so 
I would have things thrown at like, oh, well, you're just going to leave after you promised that you're always going to be in my daughter's life. The, 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 the child was eventually used as a pawn against me. Okay. And there were so many things that were wrong, but there were also so many things that were, that were good. I mean, um, I always believe that we all come in contact with each other for a reason. Okay. Whatever it is. But I do have to say, in looking back, it was really something I should have done for myself, leaving. Mm -hmm. I should have, as soon as I found out, because mind you, I had already gone through it in every relationship I was in. I had already gone through it. You would have thought that by now, Shelly, hello, you know, this person doesn't love you, obviously, because she's, you know, doing whatever. It wasn't until I put myself first. And what I mean by this, I had already disconnected from the relationship a year before I left. Emotionally disconnected. I may have been there in person, but I wasn't there in my head. And I definitely wasn't there in my heart. Um, but I had to, you know, grow some. And be like, look, Shell, you got to. You got to do what's best for you. And as hard as it was to leave that relationship and leave, you know, my stepdaughter, I did it because I thought at the end of the day, she's not my child and there's nothing I can do about it. And as, and I just felt extremely, um, it was very toxic. Um, I felt a lot of negative energy. It was just, it, it was hard to breathe at times. Um, I remember I would have migraines almost every day. I remember, um, you know, I would, you know, when you're there and you're like, <sighs> like you just can't breathe. That's how I felt. I would do that all the time. I completely understand that feeling that you're describing of not being able to breathe. I remember into the the last engagement that I was in. Unfortunately, I'm not proud of it. I'm telling everyone this now because there's nothing, there's nothing me saying this is saying that I'm proud of it. But I was having PTSD vivid dreams oh for, my God. for a whole six months. And unfortunately, you know, the person that I'm with is is having a hard time with it. And if you ever research it on your own, it, it's, it's not a pretty sight. It's not, it's not at all a comfortable feeling. It's very, right. it's very vulnerable, but to top right. it all off when you're with somebody that's causing this much anxiety and stress yeah. and you keep going, it can only go one of two ways. And this is the truth of it to my truth suicide or alcoholism to the point of death. Those are the ways or or just drugs to the point of death. Like those are the ways you try, like people try to escape. And that's statistics. Like you, you get to the point where just the anxiety and the stress of, of what's going on is just too much. And there's not much you can do about it. You can go to every therapist in the world, but you either get yourself out of the situation that's causing all of this anxiety and strife within your soul, or you succumb to it. And like the parable of the two wolves, you feed the wrong wolf and there you go. Yeah. You're in the dark yeah. place and there's no way out. Yeah. And I can, yeah. I, and, and I understand that. I understand that. And it's like, I think every single one of us, we are human. We're not just 
artists and, and just people there there's yeah, layers absolutely. to our complexity. And so, yeah, I, I get it completely when you say, you know what, like I am, I am D O N E done. <laughs> yeah. And I, I thought, you know, that that was my ideal, you know, family at the time. But again, you know, you're thinking, why are you staying if you know she's up to no good? But then again, you know, my stepdaughter would be thrown in my face and I would feel bad about it. And I'm like, obviously she knew where my weakness was. And that was with my stepdaughter. No doubt. You know, showing myself self-love, leaving was putting myself first. I finally said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to get out the kid do for me. And then boom, you know, Mia comes into my life and amazing person has been through a lot of the same thing I've been through. It was like, we mirrored each other. It was strange. It was weird. We used to joke around and say our exes were the same person, but you know, that's not true. But in joking, we would say that. And this is the first time ever that I have felt love effortlessly and someone has made me feel what real love is. This is the first time ever in my whole life that she's, you know, really, and, and we say this, look, Mia doesn't make me happy. She adds to my happiness. That's the difference. That is the difference. She and I are happy whether we're together or whether apart, we prefer to be together. Yes. <laughs> but we would be happy if we weren't. We were, we're still happy, secure individuals, but we're a happier couple. But would Mia leave you for sense? Ross? It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Mia might leave me for pizza. I, I'm, 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 you know. For so pizza. Maybe for okay. pizza. Okay, I, can, I don't know about. I, I mean, what are the <laughs> toppings on said pizza that she would leave you for? That's a real um, question. She loves the Domino's veggie, uh, the Pacific veggie pizza. Yeah, she's all about the pizza life, and uh, you oh know. My. But it's something when fans notice, when fans notice how different you look. You know, they're like, "What did you do? Why do you look?" You know, but this is what peace and love looks like. This is what it looks like. I mean, you have to fight for your peace. You cannot let anyone take your inner peace from you. I don't care who it is, a relationship, a friendship, a family member, anyone. You you should not let anyone jeopardize your peace that you have. And I think, you know, I feel it. I'm I'm in the best place I've ever been in my life. I mean, the only thing that I wish is my father was here to have met Mia because she's exactly the person he always wanted me to be with. I mean, she does things that I feel like my father had a huge hand in sending me this person because she does a lot of stuff my father would do. She says things my father wanted for me. And it's just, I mean, I believe wholeheartedly that this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. Now that we're in the the next era of of Shelley and and you know the legacy that you leave behind LMD legacy, what are some last imparting words that you would like to share of life accordion to you? Well, I, I say this that now at this point, I'm always talking about growth. I preach it 
I mentor about it and I'm living proof that there is a humongous side to the human side of Shelly that is about to emerge through my next chapter going into nursing. I always say, hands down, my music will always be part of the Hello Music history, but I don't want to just be remembered for music. I want to be known and remembered by, for my humanity and for my compassion and empathy and love for people that I've encountered or even complete strangers that I'm going to meet later on down the line. You know, so this, this, my journey is, is still well on its way. Music just happened to be part of molding the woman that I have yet to become. That's for sure. And so with that, we leave you with these wise words from Shelly Lattice, the amazing bombastic talent in Tejano music (laughs) <laughs> bombastic talent of the Hano music, the the legend, the history, and the overall beauty to what this industry can hold and the complexities of the human beings behind it. So thank you very much for joining us on another episode of Accordion to Me. And as always, puro amor, puro besos, puro tejano. Thank you for listening to Accordion to Me. The team behind this week's episode includes mixing and editing by Juan Pablo Diaz, theme music by Rodrigo Montalvo, produced by Javi G from MD Media. In-person recordings were done at the Potify Studios and remotely through Riverside FM. Accordion to Me is distributed through Anchor, and you can stream Accordion to Me wherever you